This is Annie Fox for Family Confidential, Secrets of Successful Parenting. My guest today is Ronit Barris, educator, author, and life coach. According to humanistic psychology founder Abraham Maslow, everyone is driven by needs. In Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the most basic ones are our physiological needs. Air, food, water, sleep, sex, etc. No surprises there. If you're consistently not getting what you need in this category, nothing else matters. After our survival needs are taken care of, then come our need for safety, love, belonging, esteem, and finally self-actualization. It's all pretty interesting stuff and can be very helpful when you think about human behavior. Most behavior is driven by a need. The most outrageous, over-the-top, and often inexplicable behavior is driven by intensely felt emotion tied to these needs. When a kid or a teen acts out, instead of solely addressing what the child is doing, effective parents take a shortcut and directly explore the need behind the behavior. It all sounds like a solid system. Just get your needs met and be happy. Except, what happens when one need is in conflict with another? For example, the need for acceptance, which is huge for tweens and teens, versus the need to be unique, also a big one with middle and high school students. That kind of conflict could spell trouble and often does. My guest today is Ronit Barris, who has studied and written about these conflicting needs and how they affect the life choices of adults and teens. Ronit is the co-creator of the Be Happy in Life Life Coaching Program and the author of two self-help books, Be Special, Be Yourself for Teenagers, and In the Outback with Jasmine Banks. Ronit is an experienced educator as well as an international speaker. Among her clients are private institutes, schools, universities, public organizations, government bodies, educational associations, and financial corporations. For her community work, Ronit Barris has been nominated twice for Australian of the Year. Welcome to Family Confidential, Ronit. Great to be here. Thanks. I wanted to get right to it. Your book, Be Special, Be Yourself for Teens, is not your first. And I want to find out how you got involved in working with teens. And what's your story? Uh, I think my teen story started with my teen years. (laughs) Because it was really, really tough. In what way was it tough? I was a very bad student. I was very sick, nothing really worked, and I was kicked out of school in grade 10. Wow. For not being focused enough as a student or for getting in trouble? I had about seven subjects and I failed on five of them. <laughs> so, so it is funny when I tell people that I have a degree in education and I've been kicked out of school in grade 10. Well, what I think is so wonderful about it is clearly you're highly intelligent and you're devoted to education. So I'm thinking that you have a very special role as a teacher because you understand when students have problems. I do. I do. I've been there. And when I went to study special education, what I wanted to do was to make sure that kids would not go through such things. It's just so confusing. And people think that if they'll tell you things, it'll be enough. If they just tell you what to do, it'll be enough. And it wasn't enough. So let me ask how you went from a 10th grade dropout 
to deciding that it was time to reconnect with the educational system and in fact study education. There seems like there's a gap there and I'm always interested when people turn their lives around because it sounds yeah. like you could have gone in a very different direction. Definitely. It was in grade 10 when they said to me, well, Ronnie, that's it. You cannot continue studying in here. I was supposed to be the happiest person because that's what I wanted. You wanted out. Yeah, like the whole time I said, the second I can get out of here, I am out of here. And then when they said to me, okay, Renit. You're out of here. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what happened, but something hit me. and And I realized that I've been saying it for a long time, but it's not what I wanted. I think maybe I could sit down and imagine the path. And it was like really, really sad and I I cried so much I remember myself going home for a while I didn't even tell my parents (gasps) you didn't mention that you were no I did not say anything like that and I went to check my options of okay if you go out of here what do you do and the options were worse Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what happened during those weeks but I think I cried a lot and I was meditating a lot, not that I knew what it was, mm-hmm. but it was less like a lot of thinking, a lot of, okay, what do I do? And I realized that I blamed everyone for everything that happened to me. And I imagined myself standing at a life court and the judge says to me, okay, you failed and you're going to jail, you know, this internal jail. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to defend myself and I realized that my teachers they were standing beside me trying to get me out of that jail where I blamed them for they're stupid, they don't understand, they're always nasty, they ask me too much, it's all because of my mom, it's because of my dad, it's my sister, it's my brother, it's my friend. I blamed everyone that was standing around me, just next to me. Mm-hmm. And when I realized that there would be nothing that I can say that I did for myself... I realized that there's something that it's me. It's my responsibility. It's like, it's my choice. And then I went to school. You went back. I went back to school and I went to the counselor and I said to her, I am going back to school. And she said, no, Renit, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I said, well, uh, I, I'm coming back. And she said, no, you're not. And I said, I am coming back. And she said, Renit, we only allow one summer test for kids that fail. And I said, I will do three summer tests. And she said to me, we never allow three summer tests. There is no such a thing. And I said, you will allow me. (laughs) And she looked at me and I was just arguing with her. God, I do not know where I got this strength to say that. But I said to her, I will pass all three of them. And she said to me, what makes you think he will do it now? What's different, yes. Yeah, and I said, I, I don't know. I, it's just, I will pass them, I promise. If I won't pass them, I'm out. So she looked at me and said, I've never heard you speaking like this. I will do that. I will write a special note that will allow you to do three summer tests. If you pass them, you're in. If you don't pass them, you're out. And I said, that's fine. And I went home and I said, oh, my God, now I need to pass them. (laughs) I was very, very dedicated. Like every time I had this wanting to go back or, oh, what the hell, or, oh, it's not worth it, 
I just said to myself, it's my responsibility, it's mine, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it. I just kept on talking to myself and I passed all three of them. Ha, brava. <laughs> I got an excellence award for academic achievement. <laughs> oh my goodness, what a turnaround. Well, this is so brilliant because it sounds like you had some kind of inner awakening. You know, often when kids come to a stumbling block and they're needing some support, if they're lucky, they will find an adult mentor who will help them realize that they have everything it takes to get where they want to go. It sounds like you mentored yourself. I did. And I, and I have to say that I had two people that helped me. One was my home class teacher and my sports teacher. And one day, it was something small she said to me. I failed one of my tests. I was very good at sport. And I was following her. And then she turned to me and she said to me, Renish, you know, you can do that. You have to stop thinking that you cannot do that. Of course you can. And no one ever said that to me. That you can do it. Yeah, she said, Renish, you know, you can do that. You just have to stop thinking that you cannot. Mm -hmm. And that was really, really strong. And then... My sister got married to a guy that I became a very good friend with his dad. And his dad was a 70-year-old man. We talked a lot about philosophy and about life. And he was a fascinating person. I always think of him as a guardian angel. He always talked to me like we're equal. And, and he told me things about life that explained to me things about life that made me really understand that I was really in a black place, in a bubble, did not really, really realize that there are people around me and they can go through things that some of the troubles in life will actually can make them very strong. If someone can shine a light in the blackness, if someone can help them see that the pit that they've created for themselves or found themselves in isn't all that there is. Yeah. He was very old and he lost all his family in the Holocaust. He went through such tough things, but he, he always made them look like, look, it was so tough that it made me stronger. And I cannot say that I did it all by myself. So let's move forward a little bit. So there you got your education in education and became a teacher. So tell us about your first experience teaching. I was not a regular teacher because I went to study special education mm -hmm. and specialized in emotional intelligence. Great. And I was very lucky because at the first year of my studies, I've been picked by a professor at the Hebrew University to participate in a project called Creative Thinking. The guy was a professor specializing in physics and he wanted to teach kids physics laws at grade one and <laughs> two. And everyone said to him, he's nuts. <laughs> he had amazing, amazing ideas of how to teach physics laws to very young kids. The problem he had was that he was a professor with not much connection to children. So he did not know how to present it to children. And someone said to him, look, that's what you need. You need a special education person because that's what they do. They can take every information you have and manipulated in such a way that it can be presented to any kid. 
So it, it was you. <laughs> I was one of them, yes. I was a working student. Now, this idea of creative thinking is fascinating to me. And in reading your book, Be Special, Be Yourself for Teenagers, I couldn't help but be struck by time and again, by the way, for our listeners, this is a collection of fictional short stories that help teens understand different aspects of obstacles that they may encounter growing up. They could be internal obstacles, situational kinds of obstacles. And I found that in every single story, the idea of creative thinking really spoke to me loud and clear that there is power to change your experience of every situation you find yourself in. And that's found from within you. Did I sum that up? Yeah, definitely. We all have it inside of us. We just need to turn it on. Yes. Well, what do you see are the blockages to turning it on? It sounds so simple. When you have a character in your story, like, for example, the story about the woman, it's called Love Me, Love Me Not. And, mm -hmm. and the story about the woman who is pretty much, what are you saying, still suffering from the withdrawal of her father's love when she chose not to go on and become a doctor, but instead to become a teacher. And her husband points out to her pretty much what you've just said. It's kind of like you're doing this to yourself. Flip the switch and get off of it. Yeah. Yes, it sounds simple. <laughs> and what do you think blinds us to the simplicity of happiness? I think um, emotional overwhelm. Mm. I think not being able to manage our emotions, I think that can really blur our thinking and our vision. You know how you say it when, when you talk to a doctor and you always have doctor's solutions and teachers always have education solutions? And I think it is true because I always have education solutions. And, and I think because I specialize in emotional intelligence, I think that if we have the right emotional intelligence, then we allow the light to come in. Think about emotional intelligence as having screens. You know, you're inside a house and you have screens, dark screens, and the only thing you need to do is just to open them and allow the light to come in. What is the resistance though, Rani? You say all we have to do is open the screens, let the light come in. It's a beautiful image. And who wants to live in a dark house anyway? Let the light in. It sounds like a, a wonderfully simple prescription for happiness. And yet the resistance will obviously look around, look around. People are for the most part, not very happy. I agree. So if it's so simple to be happy, why are we not happy? Happier. I don't think people believe that they're able to move the screen. They don't think it's within their ability, capacity. Many people think that external things determines if the screen is, is on and or off. Mm -hmm. Something happened to me that makes me sad. And instead of thinking, it's not about what happened to us, it's about what we do with what happened to us. Mm -hmm. If you just change the belief to, yes, something nasty happened to me, but I can treat it as an opportunity, then I don't give power to external things as much. So I think, one, people don't think that they have the power to move it. Therefore, they don't have the power to move it. Mm -hmm. Another thing, we grow up 
in an environment that, especially as kids, grown-ups determine a lot about what is happening to us in life. You know, our parents, educators, they're very, very strong. And I think in 10 years, they let go a little bit of that power and we need to take over. It's not easy, you know? Like, they are growing up, mom and dad determining everything that I do. And then suddenly, I need to do it myself. Right. And I think part of the problem may be that that takeover happens suddenly. And if it were to happen gradually... So that each year that a child gains age and experience and is held accountable and responsible for the choices they make, then like a muscle that you get in shape training for a marathon or whatever it is, this is a long, life is a long distance event. A good prescription, an educational prescription for parents would be to allow your child to test out their judgment on things and to give them more opportunities to make those choices that one day they will make on their own. That's right. And I agree. And I, I do think it's a muscle. I do think it's a, it is exactly like a muscle. I think it's a, it's a perfect way of, of explaining this. And in, in my parenting workshops, I talk about that process of giving them opportunities to make choices and I tell them you know what they will make choices that are not the best they will make choices that are not perfect but at least if you're around you can help them learn from them and move on that is so hard for so many parents don't you agree I don't know how it is in Australia but here we have this term called helicopter parents and I know many loving and well-intentioned parents who find it absolutely terrifying to even think about letting their children make their own choices. Maybe it's good if I'll tell you about my kids. I have a 21-year-old daughter. I have a 14-year-old and a 9-year-old. And my 21-year-old, when she became a teenager, it wasn't easy. I knew what I needed to do when I make the choices myself. Mm-hmm. And first time I had to give it up, it was really scary, Mm -hmm. you know? It was scary. Learning to let go a little bit can make it much easier. When you talked about the gradual progress, it is so important that if I start giving them independence and allowing them to make choices, and we can do it. We don't have to wait till they're... 14, 15. Or 18. <laughs> no, or 18. We started early. Then we can gradually let go instead of getting to a point where it's 16 when they say, will you just get out of my room? Yes. If we started from an earlier stage coming up with respecting them or telling them, look, if you want to have privacy, then started earlier and let go a little bit. A little bit in safe ways, always with age-appropriate challenges. I think it's... Say it again. Say it again. It was just like you summed it up. Letting go a little bit with age-appropriate challenges because I think parents believe maybe that they make their job more complex than it needs to be. I mean, it's complex enough to make sure that your child stays safe. But part of staying safe is learning how to keep yourself safe. That's right. I resonated with you when I met you on Twitter and reading from your website. And I thought, this woman and I are so on the same page. 
so I, I can't really dredge up too much conflict or controversy for this interview, <laughs> but I would like to talk to you about resistance that you might hear from those scared parents that you encounter in workshops, because I meet them myself, and as I said, I know they're loving and well-meaning, but damn it, they cannot let go, because they fear if they let go and stop hovering, stop making the choices for their teenagers, stop worrying about their teenagers when their kids are not right there in front of them, that they have failed and all doom and gloom will hail down on the heads of their kids. What do you say to a parent that says, it's so hard for me to let go, Ronit, please give me some advice. I know I'm smothering my child. I think the approach that I took was, and I think in that sense, my parenting workshops are not typical parenting workshops. Most of the parenting workshops I know deal with kids' behavior. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, isn't that also trying to control the child in some ways? Yeah, but in my workshop, the whole workshop is about the parent's emotional intelligence. If I manage my emotions and I understand that power is something internal, it comes with confidence, not with how strong I am in determining whatever happens in my kid's life, then I'm in a state of abundance rather than state of lack. Mm -hmm. The more I want to make the choices for them, the more I want to tell them what to do, the more I want them to do it my way, Mm -hmm. the more I am lacking the power. Lacking the power to be the kind of parent that a child really needs. That's right. Power is not how strong I am, who says the last word, you do whatever I say, it needs to be my way, this is my house. Mm. That's not power, that's weakness. Mm -hmm. Power is when I don't need to say anything. Power is where I'm a role model. My kids look at me and they can see that I have trouble making choices, that sometimes I make choices that are not good for me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It just makes me human. Sometimes they look at me and they see that I'm living truthfully with what I say to them. It's like, it's not the same as saying, you don't have to wear the jeans that everyone is wearing and then go and buy myself a brand name something. (laughs) Right. So this is where the power is. The power is where when I feel good with myself, when I understand my values, when I give the messages that I really believe in, not because everyone else is doing it, because I believe that this is what it needs to be. And I believe that in the future, when my daughter grows up, she will look back and say, one, two, three, four, five, I disagree with my mom, but she did that because she believed in it. Mm -hmm. That was appropriate to her era, that was appropriate to her upbringing, that was appropriate to her profession, but she will not be angry at, she just did it because everyone else did. So it sounds like what you've just described of being yourself, following your own values, and modeling that as a parent is exactly what most parents would love to see their teens emulate, especially when we talk about peer pressure. And I think where most parents are most fearful about letting go and giving their kids more independence 
is their lack of trust and confidence that their kids can stand firm on the foundation of the values that the parents say they would like to be transmitting to their kids. Yes, and it's because the parents are not standing on a ground. Exactly. How did you say that? On the foundation of these. Yeah. And it's quite interesting and hypocritical as well, as you say. Like the mom who says, you don't need to wear the jeans that everyone else wears and then goes out and buys herself some kind of designer outfit. Why? Because she wants to see and be seen in these clothes. She is holding on to a value, a false value, as far as I'm concerned, that what she wears is a reflection of who she is. So how can she in any way fault her daughter for doing the same thing? She can't, not in any realistic way. And kids are great at seeing through hypocrisy. And that's the fastest way I know that you will lose your child's respect Mm -hmm. if you don't walk the walk. That's right. That's so true. I just wanted to say that I was at a, um, a character education conference a few weeks ago and popped in on one of the sessions in between the two that I was giving. And something that the teacher who was presenting said, which made so much sense to me, he was talking about students. You know, teachers want respect from their students and parents want that as well. And they often say when they're having behavioral problems with their kids, my kid doesn't treat me with any respect. But what this teacher said in the workshop, I thought was so brilliant. He said, why not ask your students, what do I have to do to earn your respect? Beautiful. Yes. And why not have parents ask their children the same thing? Respect is a two-way street. So we are often telling our kids, you need to do this, this, and this, and then I will respect you. But we never think to ask them, what do I, as your parent, need to do to earn your respect? Yeah, it's aligning definitions of what respect is. Yes, and that when it comes to respect and family rules and expectations of values, there shouldn't be two sets. I'm not saying that parents and kids are equal. In no way are they equal when it comes to who calls the shots in the family and who sets policy. But in terms of respect, which I think is key, when you're talking about the foundation of what will someday be a relationship between a parent and an adult child, you want trust and mutual respect. That's right. The truth is that you're their parent mm-hmm. more as an adult and adult child than you are as a parent and a child. Yes, much longer, much longer. <laughs> much, lo- much longer. <laughs> and don't underestimate that. It's so hard for parents of young children, even parents of teenagers who are acting quite immature sometimes, <laughs> to ever imagine that someday you will be two adults, hopefully having a very warm and close relationship. That's right. So, so I think maybe it's a good opportunity to remind people that we're investing for something that most of that time will be a relationship of an adult and adult, not a 100% adult and just another adult. Because obviously there are components of parents and child forever. Yes. But adult and adult where you cannot determine and tell them and where you really, really want them to make their own choices. That's profound when I think about that because I really don't think most parents ever look that long down the road. It's not that long, you know. Well, I know, I know chronologically it's not, I know it's not that long, but when you're so immersed in the day-to-day parenting 
where you are taking this role where you're overseeing so much, it's hard to even imagine that this relationship will someday equalize. Isn't it the same as being at a dark place and thinking that this is all your life and not being able to imagine that one day it'll it touch your pass and, yes. and it'll be different? Yes, yeah, so there's that screen, that screen that you were talking about, yeah. opening the screen and le- letting the light in. So I think as parent educators, you and I could probably be very helpful because we have adult children to be able to say, this is what you're working towards. Yeah, yeah, it is. (laughs) The messages that I have is that our kids are just small mirrors and you just have to do everything that you can that when you look at yourself in the mirror, it'll look beautiful, smart and respectful and loving and friendly and some people talk about kids that are not respectful or I honestly know so many teens, it's not true. It's um, bad publicity. Someone at one stage gave teenagers a bad publicity and they just (laughs) live that self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, I can imagine why it started, but I know so many kids that are not even close to the description of a typical teenager. And I say, we should advertise them. (laughs) You know? I agree with that completely. And I also think that it's true that some teens save their worst behavior for their parents. (laughs) That's a possibility. Yes, because there's so much push-pull and conflict and power struggle going on in so many families with teenagers. And both sides contribute to it. Absolutely, both sides contribute to it. And so when I think parents are often surprised when they meet an adult and hear reports of what a delightful child you have. My child? (laughs) The the child who is just so horrid at home and so uncooperative and self-involved. I think I wrote about this in my blog about sometimes you go to a teacher and she talks about your kids and you say, are you talking about my child? Yes, I think that's true. And the reverse is also true, Roni. You know, sometimes we save our worst behavior for our families. Yeah, which is sad. It's very sad. (laughs) I think it is sad. My book talks about a conflict between two main needs. One is the need to be loved and accepted. And the other one is the love for uniqueness. And we all have those two needs, to be special, to be unique, and also to be loved and accepted. And they're constantly in conflict because the more loved and accepted and part of the group, the less unique we are. Mm -hmm. The more unique we are, the harder it is for us to connect to other people. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Well, hold on a second. I want to think about that one for a minute. The more unique we are, the less able we are to connect to other people. That's right. Because for us to connect, we need to have things in common. We have to have a rapport with those people because we share some things together. But the more unique we are, the harder it is for us to connect with others. Now, we juggle those two all our lives. And it starts at 10 years. Grown-ups still struggle with that. This is why we buy big houses and fancy cars and fashionable clothes because we want to connect. We want to be accepted. We want to be 
part of the group. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, we want to be very, very special. And this is why we do things that are unusual. If everyone is doing something in a certain way, we try doing it differently because we have to be special in some way. The teenager starts that dilemma. Teen always asks themselves, what do I need to do for you to accept me? And at the same time, they say, what do I need to do to be different? So if everyone in my family is a very academic person, then to be unique in my family, I will be a bad student. If everyone is wearing one earring, I can wear 17. We go with this forever. We do everything. The sense of significance is something so important to us that we will do a lot for it. And we will do even things that are not good for us. Grown-ups do exactly the same thing. The problem is that teenagers, this is a big conflict that they don't have a solution for. When we talk about peer pressure, it's not that the peers are putting a pressure. Oh, no, I think it's internal. (laughs) That's right. It's me putting a pressure on myself to be accepted. So the group that I'm hanging around with I will try to do a lot for them to accept me. Let's say in my group, kids having sex at the age of 14, then to be accepted, I need to do exactly the same. And if I need to be unique, then in this group, they're having sex at 14, I will have it at 12 or whatever. (laughs) So how can parents help with what sounds like a normal developmental struggle? Well, my book offers a solution. Oh, good. (laughs) Be special. Be yourself. If you will understand that you don't have to wear anything, you don't have to say anything, you don't have to be in any academic ability to be special because you're special just by being, then that would make it much, much easier for kids to go through their teen years. You see, if we'll do that, they will never come to me as a life coach, for me to teach them that they're wonderful and unique just by being. They don't have to wait till they're 40 years old and understand that trying to fit an external lifestyle or behavior, it's not who you are. So I'm thinking, Ronit, that the best parenting that you could give to your child when they reach this stage of life is to live your life in that way. And acknowledge your child for his or her uniqueness. That's right. And show your appreciation for who they are while you're happily living your life being who you are. That's right. And you know what? I would recommend parents to help kids find their uniqueness way before they're teenagers. Oh, yes. If you don't find anything unique about your kid. You're not looking. (laughs) That's right. Look carefully because it's there. Imagine that you just need to turn it on. There's nothing magical. You just help your kids find out what is special about them. Tell them how special they are. And when they do face challenges of, I need to be loved, I need to be accepted, you tell them that they have to draw the line inside. How much will I sacrifice my uniqueness for you to love me and accept me? Mm -hmm. And you know what? If someone tells you that you never, that's a lie. 
because we as an adult, we sacrifice a lot. Mm -hmm. We live in a society that we don't do whatever we want. You know, going to work is sacrificing. So don't ever tell your kids, don't ever sacrifice who you are <laughs> for other people because that is a lie because we do that as adults. You know, we go to work, we live in a house, we take some responsibilities that we wished we could stay in bed and do nothing. We follow community rules. That's right. So it's not true that we don't do that, but we have our own line that says, this is who I am, this is what I'm willing, and this is what I'm not going to sacrifice because that's my line between the two. It's like imagine those two needs standing on a scale and trying to balance them. We need to find our own balance. It's good to point that out, and it's good to remind parents that we're all, each of us a work in progress and that we should be patient with ourselves as we should be patient and compassionate with our children. It is a work in progress, and it never stops. And I find it fascinating that it never stops because it gives me the opportunity to improve it and exactly. make it better and make it more fun. And you know, continue to learn, continue to teach what we've learned, and to inspire other people, which you do so beautifully. I think before we wrap up, I would love for you to let our listeners know where they can find out more about your work and your blog and all of that. Where can they find it, Ronit? One blog that I do the life coaching through is www.behappyinlife.com. That's my business. My education site, the Family Matters site, is on my name. It's www.ronitbaras.com. Dot com, and you can find about 700 articles about education, children, parenting, and everything that I do. It's in there. The www.themotivationalspeaker.biz is where we started putting our professional development workshop and presentations on. This is great. You've got so many resources for parents and for teens, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. I'm excited that we made this connection. Thank you again for your time. Thank you, Annie, for uh, inviting me to join. This is Annie Fox for Family Confidential, Secrets of Successful Parenting. To find out more about my work with tweens, teens, and parents, check out AnnieFox.com. And tune in next time when my guest will be Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalist Katherine Ellison. We'll be talking about her new memoir about ADD. It's called Buzz, A Year of Paying Attention. Till then, happy parenting! Happy parenting!